Thank you, ladies. Well, good morning. If you'll get your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 2 today. If you're joining us for the first time, we are um, starting, well, in the midst of, we're starting a, a series in, in, in Romans. We're going to be in for a while. Um, we finished chapter 1 last week. We're going to start chapter 2 this week, um, and I'm excited uh, about what the Lord has for us today. Um, this is the fourth sermon in this series, and we see Paul writes this letter to a church he's never been to. Um, he wrote it from Corinth. He writes it to a church that he uh, didn't plant, but he heard good things about them. It's a church that consists of Gentile, which is non-Jewish Christians, and those that are of Jewish faith that have come to faith in Jesus. Uh, so it's a very uh, interesting dynamic. It's Rome's the powerhouse. That's what I call it. If you want to make influence at anywhere in the Mediterranean world, it's going to start with Rome. Um, we ended last week with, with something pretty pretty bold. If you weren't here last week, I just want to kind of catch you up because that's one of the, the things I love about going through books is that you, you get to see how everything comes together. Um, and last week we saw Paul had very bold words about the wrath of God towards sin um, on those who say thanks but no thanks. This God, I don't need Jesus. I would rather have the stuff than God and trade him off. And God gave them over. And we saw the wrath of abandonment where God says, if that's what you want, the price has been paid. But if that's what you want, then go get it. And God allows people to, to go. And God allows people to choose something other than him. Paul, as he writes this book, anticipates, this is important, he anticipates some kickback. Some, some, uh, some kickback from the religious folk. Maybe, like last week, if you were here, maybe you think, whoa, man, the wrath of God towards sin. Go get them, God. I, I hate to be those people, but I'm, I'm a Christian, so I'm, I don't have to worry about that, which is awesome, and that's great. But Paul, in his wisdom, in his writing this, he's dealt with in this ministry for 20 years. He's on his third journey, so he anticipates, and he knows how most of the Jewish people in their world have responded, what's on their minds, as they're confronted with the gospel about all people sin. All of us deserve the wrath of God, that we need the gospel of Jesus. And Paul knows that he's going to in, like, basically confront some yeah buts. Well, we did this or we do that, or we're descendants of Abraham. We are Christians. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I've been in church my whole life. I prayed that prayer when I was six. I've done this. I've done this. And he knows in his infinite wisdom, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century church, that there will be people that will say, glad that, I'm glad that's on him. I'm, glad it's, I'm not those people that were mentioned in, in paraphrase last week, the homosexuals, the wicked, the evil, the greedy, the envious, depraved, full of malice, the gossips, the slanderers, the unfaithful to their spouses, they have no love mercy they don't only do things that deserve death but they approve of those who do it and he knows that some are going to go glad i'm not those people i'm a descendant of abraham i'm all these things and paul does this now catch this this is very important as we stand to read our text he is going to pivot if you will and he's going to turn his attention religious and say you're not off the hook either He's going to turn his attention to those in our world today that may be religious of, you're not off the hook either. We still need Christ. There's nothing external that's going to save you, so hold on. So stand up with me if you don't mind. We'll read our text if you don't mind. Verses 1 through 16. There's so much here. I'm not going to lie to you. I was tempted to try to squeeze it all in one sermon, but um, I, I didn't want to do an hour and a half sermon. So I, I, I'm, we're going to divide chapter 2 up into two weeks. So uh, lots of really good stuff. So Paul turns his attention to the religious, and he's going to say this, if you're along with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, You, 
Therefore, have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based upon truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, they will give, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are religious in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are the law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing them and even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Let's pray together. Take a deep breath, relax for just a minute. Um, there's a lot here, a lot to cover. Um, I say it every week, but I'm just going to ask you to do this. If your heart's desire is to be changed and, and allow the Spirit of God to transform and move you and shape you, maybe there's somebody in here today that's really curious about the things of God, but you've never really given your life to Jesus. Maybe today could be that day. Maybe your week's been nuts and crazy, and you just have a lot on your mind, and just ask Him to, to, to help you push all that to the margins. And if you don't mind, say a prayer for me that I might speak truth from the word and what he'd have for us today. <clears throat> God, it's a joy to be here. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sometimes... The scriptures are difficult, and sometimes there's some difficult things to wade through. Um, but Father, we thank you that we have it. We thank you that you've given it to us, that we can have every letter, every word of every book, of every chapter. It's divine and inspired by you. So help us to see truth today. Help us to apply it and help us to lead different. We ask it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I joke sometimes about uh, books of the Bible and going through things. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there. If I was to take a straw poll of, of, of pastors that want to go through this book, you might sometimes just skip through chapter 2 and let's get to 3 and let's get to 5, let's get to 8, let's get to some of the good stuff. But I just want to throw this out there. We talked over the last couple of weeks that in order to understand, to truly embrace the good news of the gospel, Paul's like, you've got to know the bad news. You've got to know you need Jesus, that we deserve death for our sins. We're going to be eternally from him, we have to truly embrace the bad news to understand the good news. 
Now, I, I did a, a, some research this week, and there's an old survey called uh, Unchristian that Barna did. Um, and here's some things I just want to throw out to you. I want to put this on the screen for you. That's going to show some things that are going to be relevant. Barna did a survey uh, a while back uh, called Unchristian about what Christians believe about themselves. Here's some things that we learn about the Christian uh, denomination, Christian beliefs. This is a self thing that Christians say they're more likely to cuss less in public than other people, than don't know Jesus. I guess the modifier is in public. I'm just going to throw that. That's what it says. Um, also, that they're more likely to give to charitable causes. They're going to buy fewer lottery tickets. I don't know what that means. Uh, or they're less likely to recycle. Maybe they think it's all going to burn up in the end, so we're just, just throw it out there. It doesn't matter. Now, you might be thinking, that's really nothing to beat your chest about as a Christian, thinking, yay, go us. But, but here's, here's something that I want you to see, because here's the self-survey of Christians on themselves, not of, of non-believers, but I want you to see this. Christians say they're also most, more likely to visit pornographic websites, to get drunk, do illegal drugs, take prescription medicines that are not prescribed to them. They're willing to lie to get out of a difficult situation, having intentionally done something in the last 30 days to get back to somebody. Now, when you look at this, and I would just want to remind you as I was looking at this, this is a self-reported study. This is not a non-Christian survey about believers. This is people saying in a private anonymous study what they're saying about themselves. And if you think, well, could it get worse? The truth is, yes, 84% of non-Christians say they know at least one Christian. But listen to this. Only 15% thought that that person's lifestyle was any different than their own. You see, the grave danger of being religious, of moralism, comparing ourselves to other people, that we can put whatever we want on the outside, right? I'm just gonna, as long as I don't cuss in public, I'm going to keep it to myself. Here's the danger is that we could, if we're not careful, we can compare ourselves and keep a secret life and external, the good stuff outside, keep the bad to ourselves, put up a front and just say, well, at least we're not as bad as those people. We use moralism to compare ourselves or assume we're good with God because we've done something and we maybe pray to prayer, we're, we grew up in the church and we've done something, but externally we are very religious. But internally we participate and practice possibly things that have no fruit of Jesus. You see, the verses 1 through 16 that we're going to talk about are a single writing that Paul's going to articulate about the divine judgment of God. And he has just hammered, if you were here last week, he hammered the pagan heathen, if you will. Those who say, I don't want anything to do with that. And, and there's moments where we just sit back and go like, whoa, go get them, God. God. Go get them, Paul. Preach on, preacher. Talk about the wrath. They need to get saved. But then it's a, it's, it, it blows my mind as I was studying this, and there's so much in this 16 verses where Paul's just turning his attention to the religious elite, to the Jews that grew up in, in Judaism to have the law, and they think they're descendants of Abraham. They don't think they are, but they think we're good, right? See, his, his goal of this chapter is to expose, expose the moralist, expose the religious person who has no affections for Jesus, but they think they are good with God because of something external that they have done or that they are continually doing. Paul's going to say, not so fast. Look at verse 1. He says, you, turning his attention to the, to, to the religious, he says, you have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else or to talk about those people for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. Now, I don't want to pretend, we're going to stop on verse 1 for a few minutes. I don't want to pretend or assume anybody's reaction in the text, but here's the thing, that the Jewish believers of their time, they probably took exception of this, of saying, hey, hold on, Paul. 
We, we agree, maybe just like some of us here last week, we agree that, you're gonna, that there is wrath for sin. Not for us, but for, for sin, for, for sinners and those who reject the gospel. I mean, their lives would show it. Surely, you just gave a laundry list of all of these things, and that's not me. Up front externally, I don't do what those pagans do. Paul says you have no excuse if you're a Jew or a moralist or whatever you rely on, religious, any of these things. Someone who claims to be a Christian says, I'm good with God, and I'm not like those people. I'm pretty moral. I do more good than bad, I'm pretty sure. And so anytime in this text, this week and next week, we see this Jewish, we see religious, we see anything like that, you could paraphrase it if you want to as professing Christians that, that their external life doesn't show it, if, you, if that helps you at all. They know about Jesus, but not truly redeemed. They've gathered the facts and the details, and they do their best to be moral, to do the right things. We've got to put some on the plate, we've got to go to church, we've got to try to cuss a little less in public, I guess, uh, 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 whatever that looks like. Be a little bit more polished on the outside, but inside there's not even not a change. That's a trap, if you will. It's a, it's a self-righteous trap that I think the enemy wants to use for people to think they're okay because of what they put on the outside. But we're condemning ourselves. John Stott puts it this way. We work ourselves up. Excuse me. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people. While at the very same time, excuse me, at the very same behavior seems not so serious when it's ours rather than theirs. I've said this before in times where we love, sometimes if we're not careful, we could, we could amplify the sins of others and minimize our own. I've done it. I bet you have as well. When you, you, somebody may say something or do this or this or that, and you kind of get frustrated with it, you think, I just did the same thing. You know, I'm, I, I bet I'm not the only one. <laughs> maybe I am. I, maybe that'd be a good, good problem to have. <laughs> it's just me. We minimize our own, but we amplify others, and we feel better about us by saying, at least I'm not like that. Paul knows the heartbeat behind these religious Jews that are saying, I'm not that bad. And Paul's trying to rattle them and get their attention to say, not so fast. Look at verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God's judgment is based on truth. So when you... A mere human being, you pass judgment on them, yet you do the same thing. Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt, disregard for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead towards repentance? I love that right there. Paul is pointing out their, their religious hypocrisy. He anticipates as he writes this, as he's seeing them over, over the course of his missionary journeys about these religious Jews who want to feel better about themselves by comparing themselves to pagan Gentiles. Go get them, God. The wrath of sin. But they have this external religion, but inside they're practicing. That's why I showed you those things. If we're not careful, we can have all the external things and be polished up just fine. But secretly and statistically, those who profess Jesus are secretly practicing in some of the same things that those who don't. Now, I don't know about you, but that startles me, and that alarms me, and that concerns me. But God's judgment is based upon truth, and Paul's going to destroy any notion that a person is righteous, which right with God, justified by faith. We talked about that, that they are right with God or will escape any judgment of God by focusing on the external of others. 
I think everybody, myself at the very top of this list, would be kidding themselves if we didn't think at some point in life you felt better about yourself or your sin because you weren't as bad as somebody else. God's kindness, look at verse 4, I love this, here's some beauty here. God's kindness is what leads to repentance. A repentance, just before we read, a repentance is not just a, a, a turn, it is, that's part of it, but it's a change of mind. It's looking at sin differently and thinking, that breaks God's heart and I don't want to do that anymore. We teach it to kids sometimes about walking this way and I'm repenting, I'm going to turn this way, that's partially correct. But true biblical repentance is a mindset change of that, that sin breaks God's heart and you know what, it breaks mine. And I don't want to do that anymore. And when I do, I'm broken and I want him to help me. He wants them to repent and see their sin. He wants them to lean on the finished work of the gospel, to trust the gospel, not the religion, not their self-righteousness, but look at God's grace, his mercy, and the beauty of the gospel. Paul writes in Titus, I want to share this verse with you. It's really beautiful, beautiful and, and, and it'll tie together. In Titus 3, verse 4, says this, At one time you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Some of the wordplay is exactly the same. Watch this. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But catch this. But when the kindness and love of God, of of our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we've done, but because of what? His mercy. He saved us through the washing of, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us gen, generously, excuse me, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So that having been justified or made right with God by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Did you, did you see that? The kindness of God. The kindness leads to repentance. The kindness and the mercy of the gospel. That's what Paul's trying to say. It's because of the gospel that leads to this. And what Paul is advocating and trying to remind these folks, it's about an internal change, about a heart that's renewed, a heart that has changed. And, and I put him in notes here because I, if I'm completely honest with you on this stage up here, it, this concerns me for the American church. It does. I'd be totally lying to you if I, didn't think, if I didn't say that. That people may trust in religion, trust in things that they've done, trust in professing decisions made, made a long time ago, yet lives not marked by Jesus. We publicly try to do a little bit more good, a little, little less bad, but secretly maybe our lives, if statistically in reality, maybe they're not any different. We just hope and we bank like the Jews that they're sons of Abraham, that they're going to get there someday. We hope and we bank on the fact that we've made a decision, we prayed a prayer, we did something that's going to make us right with God. We're banking on that. We're hoping for that. But in the day-to-day grind of life, our lives are truly marked no different than anybody else. I think that's why I don't think I know. That's why Matthew 7, when Jesus himself said that there are many, it's haunting, it's a haunting for me. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he said there's many who think they're going to get there, but they're not. Some are going to say, I even preached for you. I taught Sunday school, I led ministries, I got baptized, I worked with youth and students and te- children, and I hate kids, but I did it anyway, for you, God. I was trying to lighten it up just a little bit. I did all that, for you. And God said, that's great. Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount said, that's great, but you know what, what you know the story, what did he say? I don't know you. You did a lot of really good things, but I don't know you. And we want to diffuse, and pastors like me want to diffuse the wrath, we talked about the last week, we want to dis- the wrath of God, but Jesus himself says, depart from me, I do not know you. I don't have your heart. You did a lot of stuff. 
And I think that over and over, where that's what Jesus is about. He's about the heart. Look at verse 5. We're going to keep going. Paul says, but because of, there's some descriptive words here, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself for that day of God's wrath. When the righteous, <clears throat> excuse me, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. Let's stop there for just a minute. Verse 5 is a powerful statement. He's describing the heart. He's describing a heart of someone who is not a believer, somebody who hasn't been born again, somebody who's not been changed by the gospel. He describes it as being stubborn. A lot of the Old Testament, you know, when Moses, they're a stiff-necked and a stubborn people. Paul says your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, and what unrepentant heart is, regardless of what's on the outside, your heart has not been changed. Your heart has not turned and said, God, what breaks your heart breaks mine. My Ezekiel and my stone to heart of flesh, what, what, what comes alive to the things of God, that's what matters to me now. Your heart is unrepentant. And you're storing up, you're storing up a future wrath. We talked last week about a, a, a wrath of abandonment where God's going to say, if that's what you want, I'm not going to f- you go. Heartbreakingly go. But for those who, who, who think they're this, they're storing up wrath for yourself on that day. Well, we will stand before Jesus and every one of us and give an account. Ezekiel 36 reminds us of what happens when the gospel, when the prophet speaks about getting a new heart. He says this, it's on the screen. I'm going to give you a, a new heart. I'm going to put a, a new spirit, and I'm going to move you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I'm going to move you to follow my decrees, and you're going to be careful to follow my laws. You know what that is? That is an internal change. Where God's not just going to just revamp your, uh, a little powder coating on the outside or put a coat of paint on something. It is a complete transformation from the inside out. A heart of stone that wants nothing to do with God that's not going to change regardless of what's on the outside. And a heart of flesh that's going to say, God, I'm broken because what I did, it broke your heart. And I know that you paid the price for me and I'm going to follow you the rest of my day. And not if, but when I fall, I'm going to repent again and again and again because I, I know you're still working in me. You're still shaping me to be more like you. These religious guys in this text, they're thinking we're good. And Paul says, no, you're not. (laughs) You're leaning on religion. You're leaning on doing things. You have an unchanged, stubborn, unrepentant heart. This would be like somebody today who professed to be a Christian, said, I'm good. I prayed a prayer. I said this earlier. I got baptized as a kid. I grew up in the church. Heck, I even even tithe. And Paul's saying, that's great. But your heart has not been changed. You need to be redeemed. You need to be transformed by the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 6. He says, God's going to repay for what we've done. And you're thinking, hold, flag on the play, Pastor. Hold on a second. Hold on. I thought that we were saved by grace through faith, not by works. Are you telling me that God's going to repay or he owes us something because of what we do good? No. I thought we were justified by our faith, not by works. You're right. But our works will reveal, no doubt, what transformation or lack of that takes place. It's the fruit that I talked about a while ago with the kiddos. Paul didn't mess up. He didn't lose his mind. He didn't change his mind. He was very smart. 20, 20 verses ago, he just got through saying we are saved by faith. We're justified by faith. And now in verse 6, he's quoting from Psalm 62. If you notice in verse 6, you're going to see quotes around it, which is important. If you have your own Bible, uh, mark that. If you have the church Bible, mark it. We'll give you some grace. It's okay. Just want you to follow along. But he's going to compare two groups. It's important, so give me just a second. 
He's comparing two groups. The first group he's going to compare in Psalm 62, and I'm going to share the verse with you in just a second, are those who plot against the king, who lie. They say one thing with their mouths, but do the opposite with their hearts. Those are the people that Paul's getting onto in Romans chapter 2. But then there's another group of people that he's in this quote that I'm about to share with you, are those that find rest in God and him alone. Psalm 62, the Psalm of David says this, Surely they, those people, intend to topple me from their lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but their hearts they curse. That's group one. Group two, yes, my soul finds rest in God alone. My hope comes from him. Surely he is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on him. He is my rock. He is my refuge. Trust him at all times. You people pour out what? Your hearts to him. For God is our refuge. And that's why it's important to see those quotes. Because Paul, who's genius, spirit-led, he's dividing these people and saying, there's those who have, say one thing and do another. And those who say, he's He's it. He's the only way, the truth, the lie. That's it. I can't do it. He's my refuge. I got nothing. I bring nothing to the table. He has changed me from the inside out. That's all I got. Paul is, is, is debunking, if you will, the religious moralist. He's saying, don't seek to try to honor God just with your mouth or yourselves. Your deeds or your actions, what you have done, are evidences of whatever you claim. Tim Keller commented on that exact Psalm 62 quote, and he says, what these people have done, when he's talking about what they have to do when he says this, what you have done, he said, is to find salvation from God and make him the very center of their lives. Where Jesus has the heart, and it changes everything. We say it in the church all the time, it's an inside-out transformation. But isn't that what Jesus is all about, is the heart? I think in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, this may come up next week as well, but when Jesus is drawing a crowd and he says some very difficult things, and he says, you know what, you've heard it said for people long ago, don't murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I'm going to tell you this, that anybody who's angry with their brother or sister is subject to judgment. Anybody who says to your brother or sister, Raka, is, is answerable to, to court, or wrath, is answerable to, in court. Anybody who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. That's what Jesus is saying. Matthew 5, 27, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, don't even lust after a woman, or you've committed it in your what? In your heart. Jesus wants the heart. Anybody with kids in the room and you have family, like you know your kids can put anything on the outside and try to play the part, right? Begrudgingly obey, begrudgingly submit, begrudgingly do this, and they can play the part to be good kids and whatever. But we don't just want begrudgingly good kids, right? We want hopefully God willing that they would do things out of love and, and, and obedience because they love us. Not because they have to or they're trying to trick us into thinking there's something that we're not. So the deeds of our lives matter. But God knows the heart. Jesus wants the heart. James 2.17 says in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, it's what? It's dead. Well, somebody will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you by my faith by my deeds. James says, you can say one thing and do another. What I'm saying is that I'm going to show you what I believe by how I live. And I think that's where I go back to those statistics, and it's kind of startling, but I'm not going to go back to that. We've got a lot to cover. Let's look at verse 7 to 11. 
That's why the apples and the oranges of the tree metaphor is important if we look at that, what Jesus said. So the deeds of our life are important. Evidence is the faith, not the basis of it. But how do we look at verse 7 through 11? To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, rejecting the truth, following evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. I go out on a limb here and say that for those that were Jewish in the time, they probably had a hard time with verse 11. We're the descendants of Abraham, we're God's chosen people. In this powerful text where God, uh, excuse me, where Paul is saying there are those who are self-seeking, reject the truth, and they follow evil. They are going to suffer God's wrath for their sin. Trouble, verse 9 says, trouble and distress for those who make it all about themselves. As religious as you want to be, externally as religious as you want to be, and the good things you can do, if it's about you, Paul's saying you're showing where you are. But glory and honor and peace, which is the absence of sin for those who do good, and they live their lives marked by the Spirit, change of heart, transform lives, born again, that's what verse 10 is talking about. Glory, honor, and peace, which is the absence of wrath for all in this room and in the text for those whose lives reflect the God of Jesus. We can't stand, I can't stand before a holy God on judgment day and hold up my church membership card as if we had those. Maybe we should get some printed. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, my Sunday school attendance, I, I, I'm a preacher. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm, I'm, I'm this. I, I got baptized. I did this. None of that is going to matter. That may startle some in the room to hear that, but I love you too much to tell you that none of that's going to matter. God wants the heart. And outside of his saving grace of Jesus Christ, all of that counts for nothing because even that, even this, preaching, teaching, ministry, Sunday school, VBS, titles, all that, if not careful, it could be about us. It could be about you. And there are literally, I, I go back to it, and I, I feel... I, I felt the weight of this this week I was studying. There are literally those, I feel that in, in, our, in our world, our country, that almost hold on to this American Christianity as almost as if it's as sacred as the Jews. They're saying, we're descendants of Abraham. And I remember going to India and people think, well, if you're just born in America, you're a Christian, right? Right? No. To you, to me, to Jews, to Gentiles, there's no favoritism, no special treatment, not shortcuts. You can't bypass the wrath of God. You can't bypass the judgment seat of Christ. All will stand before Jesus. Let's look at the text. We'll wrap it up. Verse 12 through 15. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey it or do it that will be declared righteous. Indeed, the Gentiles who do not have the law, you know, they didn't grow up as the God's chosen people and having the law and having the Old Testament, but do by nature the things required by the law, they are the law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their conscience is also bearing witness. And their thoughts sometimes accusing them. And at this, excuse me, and at other times, even defending them. I don't want to minimize this or try to simplify what Paul's trying to say here, but he's making the point to the Jews who had the law, 
but they were sinning against God while the Gentile pagans who did not have it were, were obeying it. Paul's saying one sins without it, one sins under it, and it all are condemned if it's not from the heart, if the heart is not changed. And as complex as it is, I want you to hear this, neither Jew nor Gentile nor Baptist nor Methodist nor anybody like that, any title will escape the judgment of God. And I want you to see this. I want to hang out at verse 16 for a few minutes. Look at verse 16. Paul's saying the ground is level. It doesn't matter. There's no favoritism to the Jews in the Roman church. You're not, you're not up front and center at the front of the line. But the ground is level. He says this. This is going to take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now, I don't know about you, but how does that make you feel rhetorically when somebody's going to judge the secrets of your heart, the inner recesses of your being, the stuff that nobody knows? I think anybody who's human is going to go, ugh. But that's how piercing the gospel is. It cuts through all facades, all intentions, all religion. And sometimes we think because we have a, a title of a, of a believer, a Christian, that we're going to escape all this. And we get to stand over here like a fast pass at Disneyland and get up here and that we don't have to give account for anything. And I've not seen that in Scripture anywhere. But wouldn't it be just like the enemy... Wouldn't it be just like Satan who's tried to deceive us? We talk about this from the garden, from the wrath of God, from that God's holding out on you. Wouldn't it just be like him to want to convince people that everybody's aight, everybody's good, everybody's, you're right where you're at, you did this, don't, don't, let, don't, don't let pastor say this, it's going to cause, just, you're good. You did some stuff. You grew up in the church, you did this, and that's great, and that's probably true, but here's the thing, the scriptures are supposed, we're supposed to test ourselves and let this be something that we can put ourselves against and see where we're at. And if we're banking on external religion, that internally our lives aren't marked any different, then that's like children, that's like looking for an apple tree on, a, on an orange tree. And again, for the third time in my notes, I put it here, I think this chapter connects, and next week, for those of us in the American church, we live in a blessed country with many freedoms. And so many, I remember back in India, we so want to love under this, this evangelical label, which that got you know, that kind of turned into a voting block, and that doesn't mean what it means anymore. But what do my, or what do your, what are our inner secrets, the recesses of our inner being, what does it reveal? Not what people know on the outside. Do I find myself, or do you find yourself kind of masking sin, but trying to push to be more polished on the outside, but our hearts are just kind of lost in sin and darkness? Are you banking eternal hope on the decision that you made as a kid? Are you thinking somehow, some way that that's going to stick? Well, I'm a this. I was this. I was this. I was this. And, and God cuts through all that. He wants the heart. He's telling these people that are the descendants of Abraham that that's not going to matter. That doesn't get you there. You've got to be born again. You've got to be brought from death to life. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul said it at the end of verse 16 that he's going to judge men's secrets through what? Jesus Christ. He's the judge. He alone. He tells the church in Corinth, where we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Tim says that Paul's concern is to show the ground of which we stand. Jew, Gentile, excuse me, backwards. Gentile and Jew, irreligious, religious, rule-breaking, rule-keeping, it's all level. It is only from this ground that we are able to look at the cross and see it clearly. 
We cannot appreciate who Christ is unless we first acknowledge who we are. And what he's saying in context of all of this is say, until we get to our heart and say, yeah, I might be kind of polished on the outside, but my heart is dark, my heart is ugly, my heart is deceived, my heart is, 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 is just struggling. We've got to look to the cross. And I'm going to beat this drum for another couple of weeks. That, that to, we've got to truly grasp the, the bad news, that hearts that aren't changed, hearts that aren't redeemed, hearts are brought from death to life, heart of stone to flesh, those hearts will be judged and will send it forever away from him. I wonder sometimes when Paul's writing this, of course he didn't, he didn't get there till later and then he was arrested, I wonder if he wrote with the same passion of this, I just want you to get it. Before I close with Romans 3 and just a true celebration of the gospel, because we have the news, we have it, right? We get to read it and get to, we know where the letter's going. And I wonder sometimes when they're reading this in the church in Rome, they're going, dude, I think they might have said dude back then. I don't know. Or brethren, I'm just kidding. Uh, brethren or whatever is going on. This is, this, is, this is heavy. We get to chapter 3 and he's going to say this, but here's the deal. I've said this analogy a long time ago. If there's anybody in the room that you're wrestling and you think, man, I, I, I don't know. I have no affections for God. I have no affections for Jesus. I have no affections for the church. I've got no affections. I have life that secretly, I'm just statistically like everybody else. But I prayed a prayer. I did something like that. Then maybe we need to wrestle. And it's okay. It's not trying to like, have to like doubt things. But it's okay to question and truly wrestle with, do you know him as Lord and Savior? The analogy I've used for years and years is that I had to prove, if I ask you right now, prove to me that you are alive. Prove to me. I've done this with kids, I've done it with students, I've done it with adults. I've done it with senior adults. I've asked this question, if I had to prove to me, show me that you're alive, what are you going to do? Someone in the room, you're going to start waving your hands. I'm alive. Hey, hello, see. Like, I can move. I'm going to breathe. I'm doing it. Had, over all the years, over 20 years in ministry, not one time has anybody ever left the room and gone to their house to get their birth certificate. Not one time. Can someone be dead and have a birth certificate? And I've had this, and I remember this was something that's it's, it's, it's personal, but it's also something that's it's, it's a true thing. If we, if I, if I have to look backwards, if I'm trying to wrestle, God, where's my heart? Do I know you? Am I redeemed? Am I rescued? Is my heart of flesh, heart of stone? If all I can do is look backwards and go, is there anything back there that's going to justify that I truly know Jesus? I ask that you wrestle with it. We ought to be able to look right now. In some of that, we're, we are believers, but we're struggling in sin, and God's trying to sanctify us and shape us and mold us. And maybe there are some that you know a lot about him, but you're banking on, are you with me? You're banking on something back there that's going to stick for down there. But when I ask those children to look at the fruit of a tree, apple, oranges, whatever kind of tree it is, we've got to look at the present. What is God doing in my life? Now, as evidence, as the basis the foundation of my faith to show my heart has been brought from death to life. Romans 3 tells us, and we're done. It says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. It'll be on the screen. In God's sight, by the works of the law, rather through the law, we become conscious or aware of our sin. This, the law reveals it. But now, apart from the law, God has been made known. A righteousness has been made known, excuse me to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to 
who believe there's no difference. This is huge. This is coming later, so act surprised when we get to chapter 3. There's no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's no favoritism. He just said that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him, he presented Christ as the sacrifice of, of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We talked about that in chapter 1. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because he did this in forbearance as he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. Let's pray together. I know that's a lot today, and I'm not going to pretend like it's not. Wherever you're at today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, here's what I just want you to do. Just be still for just a second. Whether you're wrestling with God working on you and convicting you of things in your life that you're making and molding you because you truly are a son or a daughter of his, or maybe there's somebody here today that you're thinking, I don't know. That's an honest place to be. Don't shy away from that. I tell people all the time, you don't want to assume eternity. And it may not be today, it could be today, but there's anybody that hears my voice and you're thinking, man, I don't know, Pastor, I'm just banking on something I did when I was a kid, I don't know. Can we have a conversation or talk to somebody? As, as upfront as this sounds, Paul is, is, is kind of rattling the cage, shaking a little bit. He just wants people to know. Did you hear what he said earlier? It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It is his mercy, his grace, his love that's going to draw you to himself. And you're thinking, he so loved me. He died my death. He should have to die that death so that I get to be with him someday forever. And I get to live that life right now to reflect him to a lost world. So whatever this lands on you, my only request is this, is to evaluate right now. Don't look back, right now. And whatever he speaks to you, just respond. Be it today, or be it after church, or maybe, maybe you need to come down here and pray. I'll pray with you. Find a friend, find a parent, find a spouse, find somebody. Whatever he's asking of you, just obey. You pray, and then we're going to stand and sing.